continue here through Philippians. Um, again, we're going to be looking at two verses. So we're going to be in chapter 1, continuing on. We, we just looked at verse 6 last week, and I want to do a few minutes of review. I know some of you um, have been here for each week as we've gone through, I think, uh, six verses and three weeks total. But looking throughout all of this, doing a little bit of review before we enter into 7 and 8. Um, we see Paul writing here to the Philippians. Um, someone quickly remind us of where he was at the time of the writing. Jail, Jail right? As I always say, with Paul, assume he's in prison constantly, because he was. He's writing to the church here in Philippi. We looked a little bit at the backstory, at some of the history of the church at that time. And um, we looked, after these first couple verses, we see this great care that he has for the people um, in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And we saw that he was thankful to God when he was remembering them. And, and we asked, you know, think of the people in your life that you are thankful to God for whenever you think of them. That his view of them was incredibly, incredibly positive. Does that mean it was a perfect relationship? Absolutely not. But he had a deep sense of concern and of care for them. And we're actually going to see a lot of these similar things in verses 7 and 8. We saw in verse 4, he was continually in prayer for them, making requests with joy. And he was also thankful for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. We are reminded that they actively helped, especially in the area of finances, but also likely in prayer and in other ways of partnering and in fellowship. But we saw that they financially helped support much of what it is that he was doing in this time. And this was a church that was not exactly uh, overwhelmingly abundant with their funding. It was a poorer church, but yet they still sought to give. Because as we know, it's not about how much you are giving, but the intention and the reason in which you give. So he was thankful to them upon receiving this partnership, this fellowship, or this koinonia in the gospel from the first day until now. And then we looked at this one verse, which many of you know, uh, well, it'll actually be our closing song here at the close of the service. As he says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we spent the entire service last week simply looking at the truth of this one verse, that God will bring to completion those things which he begins. There is no exceptions. If he has begun it, he is going to bring it to completion, which is why we understand our salvation being eternal, being secure, because it was not dependent upon ourselves in the first place to produce it, to bring it about. He is the one who is going to perfect what it is that he has begun. And the great certainty of these things, that if he has begun a promise, he is going to bring the promise to completion. And we sat back and were able to say, how often have I failed to complete something which I started? And I bring up sore subjects such as a housing project or cleaning a garage or any of those things that any of us have ever set out to do and do not quite complete. These are the reality of things. We can often get distracted or at times we can grow so frustrated we just don't want to deal with things anymore so we can stop and say, I'm done with it. It's just going to be left unfinished. But God is bringing to completion those things which he starts. Imagine if God was the one, and in his character, he looks upon a person who he has saved and redeemed, and though we continue to still sin and wrestle with the flesh, says, you know, I just can't work on this anymore. I'm done with it. Um, I don't want to bring it to completion. You guys are driving me nuts. How many of us would then make it into heaven? 
None, right? Because we're going to have those struggles. We're still going to wrestle with things, which is why we have to constantly be reminded of the truth of the gospel, that it is not us who saves ourselves, but simply by the grace of God. So we look there at that verse, and then we get into verses 7 and 8 here this morning. He writes in verse 7, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning for the truth of your word and the the nourishment and the strength that we receive from it. We thank you for revealing your wisdom and your, your knowledge and your character. God, I pray this morning as we look at just a few simple, uh, incredibly simple concepts and things that you've, you've made known to us through your word, that we would see you as a, a great and a mighty and a wonderful God, understanding you for, for who you are and praising you for all that you've done and all that you will continue to do as you continue to grow us and uh, make us more and more like your son. Father, we praise you and we thank you for all these things this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're familiar with me a little bit, you see one particular word here that I'm going to be excited to talk about kind of towards the end. We'll get there eventually. Um, it's exciting when you see the way that Paul is talking about these Christians, isn't it? Does it bring any um, warmth to your heart to hear the way in which he is addressing fellow believers? Because he is not addressing them as he has in others, right here of simply rebuking them, of saying, hey, you guys should know better. Here's where you're wrong. Here's the correction. This is what it is to be. But he's opening up with, I am thankful to my God for you because we share in this likeness. We have a similar bond. We have a fellowship in the gospel. And he is speaking incredibly kindly to these people and building them up and encouraging them as they have encouraged and built him up. Um, this is not always the case within Christianity as a whole, whether you look locally, nationally, or globally, right? Churches can notoriously be very, very, um, let's say, sour in speech, right? It's not very sweet. It's not always very kind. It's not always very, very gentle. Christians at times can be incredibly hateful in speech, particularly towards others, right? This is why something like gossip is commonly talked about in churches of, hey, you know, the, people don't like church because it's a lot of gossip. People say one thing, do the other, right? They're hypocrites. We see all these criticisms of churches here, and it's something to ever uh, be presently aware of. But here he's writing to them, and we see him starting off, after already talking about how he feels about them, he says, even as it is meat for me. So this is, it is only right the word here is dikaios. This is often um, expressing a moral or a spiritual rightness. Right? And this is so, it's incredible to see as he's writing to this, he has explained his attitude and spirit towards them and says, It is right for me to think this of you all. Not just it's, it's good or it's profitable or it's beneficial, but it is the right thing. It is morally and spiritually right to have this attitude or this spirit towards you. This is how. He ought to feel about them. 
This is not just, hey, if, if, you know, in your best efforts, just try to think positively about others in the church. Just try to be encouraging. He understands that he ought to feel this way. He ought to think this way towards them. It's how he ought to feel. And you'll notice here, um, depending on the version that you have in the King James here, it renders it as to think. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all. Other texts have it as feel, which is an interesting kind of difference here for the English language, right? One is saying think, one is saying feel. And the important thing to note is neither is wrong, both are right, because of what it is that it's actually trying to convey. Uh, the Greek word there is phreneo, speaking to a particular disposition or an attitude. There's a few words here. We're going to look back in the Greek and actually define them out in that way because the English rendering of things is not always going to be absolutely perfect because culturally we understand things differently than it was here in this time. But this refers to an act of the intellect and the will and is sometimes translated as to think. So we, we've talked, I think I've talked at length about the difference between thinking and feeling things, right? How our, our thinking should inform our emotions. So as we continue on in these two verses, we're going to see the contrast between the heart not being the way that we understand heart culturally because we're going to look at verse 8 and we're going to look at the bowels, okay? Which, again, one of my favorite words to ever use in preaching, okay? I'm so thankful it keeps coming up. I love it. The best way to understand what he's saying here is of saying, even as it is right for me, I ought to think this, or I ought to feel this, or I ought to be responding with this attitude, this disposition, this concern for you all. It is right for me to have this joy in this fellowship for you all. Why is it then that Paul is saying it is right for him to rejoice in a fellowship of believers? Because this is not something that is always the case, and it is often overlooked where, as, as members of a church, we can often come in simply, we're individuals, and then we all get to, get to be together as if it's a bunch of leaves put into a pile, and then the wind blows, and now we all go our separate way, as opposed to actually trying to be unified in what it is that we're doing. Imagine a pile of leaves being raked together, and then actually having discussions, and then just blowing away again. Um, some of you would actually enjoy watching that happen. The conversations a leaf would have. But there is something unique that is tying everything together, which is the gospel here. And he's writing and saying, because of the gospel, it is right for me to think this of you all, to have a very high view of the fellowship that we have with one another. Why? Because apart from it, what are you, what are you left with? You're just left with yourself. This is why the church is so important and why locally, nationally, globally, however we want to look at it, the institution of the church is something that Christians ought to be incredibly thankful for rather than it being a burden on a Sunday morning. Because apart from it, we are left to wander. We are not going to be built up. We are left simply on our own to be tossing away with the wind. And so here he's writing to them to say, it is right for me to feel this way. And then he answers why. It says, because I have you in my heart. Man, how, what does it feel like when a person says to you, I have you in my heart? 
Like these very words bring an incredible amount of comfort and of joy. And, and it's nothing but encouraging. The, the response of a person saying, I have you in my heart. This shows a genuine love and care and concern for another person. You know, maybe just take a minute now and look at the person next to you and say, I have you in my heart. Right? These, the, he doesn't know each one individually. He doesn't know each and every person's exact name, their likes, their dislikes, all of their interests, how tall they are, what color their eyes are. But is that what it is that is going to dictate whether you have a person in your heart or not? Here he is writing to Christians, and you can see him as he's writing this out of saying, I ought to feel this way because I have you in my heart. And it continues on, he's mentioning the gospel, partakers of the grace. I don't know thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Christians throughout all of history, but they should be in your heart because of the tie that binds it all together. Why is it that a Christian feels such an attachment? Or you can look at the person of Paul. How many of us have ever met Paul? No, but you feel like you know him, right? You feel like he could be a friend. You actively feel as if you have a relationship with this person because of the gospel. This is the unity that's promoted all throughout Ephesians. And in Ephesians 4, we're called to maintain the unity. We're not to create it. Maintain the one that has already been created by the Spirit. Essentially, in saying, I have you in my heart, the short way of saying this would be saying, I love you. Right? He has a love for these people, and it's not because they're the most talented, the best looking, or the kindest people. He simply has a love for them, a deep concern because of his love for them, because of the gospel. And so here when we see heart being mentioned, we, we've mentioned it before and that was months ago, so we're going to go back through it for a minute. This is far more and far different than just the way that I feel. Right? Heart here is not reflective of our feelings or of our emotions. Now I know, and I'm going to probably get some flack for this, Hallmark Channel, okay, I knew it. I was thinking just of you too, Lori. Right? Hallmark Channel does a very good job of linking heart with just feelings, right? This is what we do with kids all the time. They think, you know, Maddie will say, you hurt my heart when I tell her she can't have more anything, right? doesn't even matter what it is, okay? Um, she does the thing where she asks, you say no, and then she asks you again, thinking the answer is going to change. And when the answer is the same, that hurts her heart, okay? So she's sad now, right? So we culturally reflect, because Hallmark and other sources have done really well with this, we link our heart specifically to our feelings. But biblically speaking, the heart was very, very, not detached, but very different than just feelings. It was the intellect. It was the will. It was the mind. It was the whole of a person. It was not just, well, I feel sad. That was in no way ever going to be attributed to the heart. The feelings or the emotions that we have was not linked to the heart. That is what we see there in verse 8 was attributed to the bowels. So again, months ago, we kind of went through some of these things. But so when we see biblically, speaking of the heart, he is saying, I have you in my heart isn't just I think of you and I get these flutters in my stomach, right? Or my heart is, is warmed because I'm thinking of you. He is saying the whole of who I am, my mind, my intellect, my will, all of these different things, I have you there. You are in the core of who I am as a person. And it's because they were synonymous. So mind and heart 
being used interchangeably. It is with our heart, biblically, that we believe in God. I would strongly discourage anyone here who, who thinks that a belief in God, a love for God, is simply a feeling or an emotional driven, emotionally driven belief. The one who just says, I believe in God because I feel something. Because what's going to happen is that feeling will not always remain. We've talked at length about emotions and how fleeting they are. Um, some of you feel very, very differently emotionally right this minute than you did 20 minutes ago. You know, emotionally, I was ready to preach for two hours, and then I heard about burned food, and now we're chopping it down, right? It changes. See? <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, he's, he's taking it. Right? It, it changes based on the circumstances. This morning in the Sunday school, we talked about um, God being omniscient and having perfect knowledge, and we learn things which is going to dictate the way that we respond. We act differently according to what we've experienced and to what we learn. We receive more information. Knowledge comes in. Now we are going to change the way that we react. If, if my daughter, whose heart is hurt, comes to me asking for a cookie and I say no, well then when she says, well, mom said I could, not only there am I caught in a very difficult position, but more information has come in, so I know that a parent has already said, yes, she is able to. That is going to dictate the way that I then respond to her again. But I had to learn that information. We're constantly learning things. And I am constantly wrong and constantly lacking in information. And think about it. The information we do get, we don't always understand, right? We need someone else to make sense of these things. So when he's, he's talking about the heart here, this is the thing by which we believe in God, the heart that is then exchanged, the heart of stone being replaced with a heart of flesh so that we are able to believe, so that we can have faith, that we can serve and love and obey our Lord and our Savior. Some of you have individuals that you would say you hold in your heart. They are the ones that are constantly on your mind. They're not just the ones that you, you change the way that you feel about them depending on what's going on. They are constantly on your mind. They are constantly in your prayers. You are constantly concerned for them. For some of you, it is a child or a niece or a nephew or a parent or a sibling or even extending out. Maybe it's no one in your family is on your heart. It's friends, coworkers. We have that understanding because in the core of who we are, they are constantly being remembered by you. So he said, it is right that I ought to think or, or feel or be all of these things because I have you not just in my heart as far as I have feelings or I have this feeling of infatuation with you, but because of the one unique thing that sets us apart from everything else, the thing that keeps us together, which is the gospel, I have you in my heart and you are just as much a part of me as anything else. Why is it that Christians can get together, have conversations if they've known each other forever and you've just met at a conference? What do you have to talk about? You're talking about God, right? Perfect. What, what better thing to talk about? How encouraging it is to come to someone you have no understanding of who they are, of what they like, of even their name, and you can even forget to ask their name, or they tell you and you're just like, get that out of here, I don't remember names. Right? Some of you are great with names, some of you not so much. And that's okay. So he continues to write these things, and then he moves it into, and as much as both in my bonds, because again, they were partnering and aiding him while he was in chains, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers 
of my grace. This defense, this apologia, this, this is where we get the word of apologetics, a defense for the faith, right? It's important to be able to give a defense of the faith. We see Paul frequently giving a defense of the Christian faith. He was not just passively sitting by, seeing heresies, and just saying, well, to each their own. He was not just tolerating different heresies. He wasn't just tolerating idolatry. We look back in Acts, I think it's in um, 17, I'm not entirely sure. But we see him uh, coming in and seeing all of these idols, and then he's, he's so grieved in his spirit, right? He's incredibly grieved that he has to go, and he's going to give a defense of the gospel, of the Christian faith, rebuking those who worship and serve these false idols. And he reminds them again, and he is thankful that they too are partakers of this, that they are partners in what it is that they are doing. Now, please do not hear me saying that these people are perfect in any way. The people that he is writing to are absolutely not perfect. We're going to see some of these imperfections being played out here later on. In each chapter, he addresses different things that need to be improved, that need to be worked upon. But he had a great love for them. Think of the people that you love. Is that person perfect? Right? For, for those, of us, those of you that are married, is your spouse perfect? Answer in your head. Don't say it out loud. Right? People are not perfect. We do not love someone because they are perfect. If you are looking for the perfect person to love, that's not going to work. Because I can also say, if I'm looking for a perfect person to love, um, I really hope no one else is looking for me to be perfect. It's so important that we understand that these are not perfect people, but because they were believers, Paul had a deep love and a deep concern and a deep appreciation for them. Incredibly appreciative of others in the faith. As partakers, again, of being partners, they were involved in life with one another, and they were compassionate towards him. Again, this compassion is not just, I feel something strange inside, so I know that I care. But it is compassion, inspiring action towards someone else, right? You see a person um, getting kicked on the side of the road, and you go, oh, I feel very bad for that person. Compassion causes you to do something for it, right? Compassion doesn't just sit there and continue on to drive by. For God is my record. Here in verse 8, he, he does what he often does to emphasize how strongly he feels about this, of saying, God is going to be my witness in this. Can you have a better witness to, to give a testimony to what it is that you're saying? God is the one who is going to be the witness of these things to testify to the truth of it. For God is my record or my witness, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. He has this deep longing for them, to be with them. We see in frequently throughout a lot of his letters, he longs to be with other believers. Why, why do you think that is? Is that an odd response for a Christian to long to be with other believers? It certainly shouldn't be an odd response. It should be a longing that many of us do because that is the community in which we are meant to be in. But we see this deep longing in the part of Paul to be with others. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. This, this word bowels is the way that we may more rightly understand it would be affection. 
the affection of Christ. We understand what affection is, and uh, but we look here at the bowels. This is, again, referring to the internal organs, right? This is the feelings that we have internally, whereas heart was much more of the mind, much more of the intellect, much more of the will. The bowels reflecting of the feelings that we have. Some of us allow one to dictate more than the other. For some of us, again, like myself, I'm much more of a thinker, right? So it's very, very easy for me to say, hey, get these emotions out of here. I don't trust them. I don't need them. But often I can miss certain things that my emotions are going to allow me to be able to enjoy or to feel. And on the other hand, there are those who say, I don't want to think about anything. I just want to be free with my emotions. I just want to feel, uh, be up and down and be all over the place. This is one of the great issues that that churches have now is often a large movement, generally in in many, many mainstream churches, is just to have a purely emotional experience with God to where your belief, your understanding of God is purely driven by emotion, which means we're going to play music in a very particular way to kind of disengage the mind so that you're not really aware of what it is that's being said. And to cause people to make a particular decision, we have to foster an atmosphere because we understand that no person would ever receive Christ without a piano or a guitar or a soft, quiet voice being off in the corner, right? It's this emotional manipulation sense that takes place. Or or these grand displays of things to cause people to have an emotional response, which we know to be temporary. And this is why we've gone back to it previously and understanding that faith is not just something that um, a person comes to blindly and just says, you know, we're just, I'm just supposed to believe, so I just do, as if God has not given a testimony of reason and of evidence. Um, some of you enjoy apologetics. Some of you enjoy arguing. Obviously, you know that I do as well. Um, these are arguments that are often presented, is that they're, give me evidence of God and I'll believe. Um, God, the song we sang, God of Wonders, right? Look around. We always go through that. Look, read through the Psalms. You can see the Testament of creation. We know in Romans 1, God has given evidence of himself to all men. None, no one has an excuse. He has given plenty, plenty of evidence. And it's remarkable how here as he is writing these things, he not only is pairing his heart or his mind or his will, all of him... But he does end up coming in, coming back to now. He also feels these things. He's not devoid of emotion of just saying, I coldly have this calculation that I'm supposed to love you, so I'm going to say it. He has this longing, this feeling in his bowels that is on the inside. We all have these similar responses. When we get anxious or we're scared, we feel it in our lungs, right? We have a shortness of breath that comes over us. Our body physically responds to situations that take place. When we see that really cute person, like our first crush, you know, you're in school and that person's really cute and really sweet and you're shy and blushing and embarrassed to see them, your heart starts to beat a little differently, right? Or maybe, it's, maybe it was just me. I, my heart didn't do that, you know? But our bodies respond physically to things that we see, that we hear. It, it, these are actual things. So when a person would say that they were greatly grieved or that their stomach was in knots, Right, you see Jeremiah, he's grieved in his bowels, right? Because he feels it inside. He has this sense of, of angst and all of these different things that are inside of him. 
is mentioning the affection of Christ because this is the source and the foundation for these feelings, this attitude, this spirit that he has towards these other Christians. This is one of the great, great struggles that we can often have in conversations with those apart from, from knowing who God is. Again, this is a book of joy, right? This is a book where he's constantly rejoicing, constantly bringing back this understanding of joy. Not only here rejoicing for these other believers, rejoicing because of the relationship and the partnership they have, but rejoicing quite simply in the gospel because apart from that, he would have no joy, he would have no love, he would have no enjoyment of this fellowship. Man, look, look at people that we know, Think people that we have in our families, that we work with, maybe even some of us here, People constantly want to pursue joy. It, life is a constant pursuit, usually of happiness, but of joy, right? People want this, this everlasting contentment, this joy that is not going to be dictated just by circumstance. But where do people look for it? It's not always the same place. Paul has this joy, this incredible rejoicing, knowing that all of this stems all the way back to the very, very foundation and the source, all being in Jesus Christ. Many people often seek to find this joy apart from the work of Christ, apart from the Spirit, seeking to say, hey, Christians seem really happy. They have this joy, and it's very, very strange. I don't know how to get it, so I'm going to do what they do. You, people know a Christian who seems very um, joyful, very happy, and says, well, they do this, so I'm going to do this, so I'm going to go to church now too, and I'm going to be happy and joyful. Well, guess what? They just go. They're doing what a Christian does. Nothing changes. Okay, so now I need to be what this Christian is, so now I need to just be kind to people. Okay, I'm trying to do that. Well, I don't get any joy out of this. Well, now I need to, uh, to be this because they also are doing these things, and people constantly seek to, to do what Christians do, or to be, what a, to be what a Christian is. But the breakdown is that they don't know who the Christian knows. A person can sit in the garage, but you're not a car. right? A person can sit in the church, doesn't mean you're a Christian. So how then is a person going to ever have joy? We look and we constantly see people apart from Christ seeking joy, and it is a never-ending struggle. It is absolutely a relentless and hopeless pursuit of these things. Those who do not possess the Spirit do not possess the joy that is seen here in this letter by Paul to the Philippians. And with so much conversation these past weeks, and as we'll continue on, um, it's going to be important that we understand that there's going to be things which are going to come up, which are going to try to take away or to keep your joy from you. To not want you to be rejoicing in the fellowship of, of the church. To not want you to be rejoicing and being thankful for the word of God, of keeping you from it. These, these are things that are going to happen as you emphasize joy. Satan is going to be working to keep you doing rather than being or knowing. Saying, hey, you're, you talked a lot about joy, but you're not doing anything. I, I know that you know who God is and that you're, you're learning more about him and you're enjoying um, being his, but you need to be doing something instead. And if you're not doing it, you know, do you really have any joy? Constantly, constantly working. This is... You look in Mark chapter 4 and you look at the parable um, of the seeds and of the sower and you see those that, 
that are seeking it. They get emotionally puffed up. They get emotionally excited about what is going to happen. They've gone to church. They hear something that they have an emotional reaction to and say, yeah, I want to do that. They're going to try being a Christian for a month. But it doesn't ever take a root, and the sun comes, and it burns it up, and it goes away. Or the seed that's scattered on the ground, and then Satan immediately, the birds come in and take it away immediately, just the same way that Satan would, where it doesn't actually get to take hold. He writes these things to them to, to show us a deep appreciation and affection for others that are in the church. Who is the one who has given us the church? Right, Christ says, who's the one that built it? Okay. These are absolutely core truths that we understand because, again, often people want to, to love Christ. They love Jesus, but they want nothing to do with the church. They love the head, but they don't want any part of the body. Man, some of us have been absent from church for a couple weeks, right? We'll go on vacations. Things get busy. Things go on. And then you come back and you say, I am so thankful to be back. It's not because there's incredible entertainment. It's not because the coffee's any good. It's not because whatever the situation might be, right? Like, it's not those things. There's something different. It is something supernatural. It is not something driven by what it is that we as individuals do. It's the Spirit of Christ that is in the gathering of the body of believers. And anything that tries to cheapen that is to cheapen what it is that Christ died for. And this is the thing that's not always emphasized enough is, does a Christian love the church? The church shouldn't be a burden. The church isn't just a place of being together. But it is the thing which Christ died for. So here in Philippians, he continues, and he's, he's writing all these positive things, ones that uh, many of us would like to receive a letter to be upon these things, of, of someone longing to be with us in this way. And then to close and to not get all the way through, but he writes in verse 9, And this I pray, he's, he's going to start into some more of his purpose, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge, and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. He, praying that their love would abound. He has a deep, deep concern for others that are in the church. He, he is rejoicing in this rich fellowship with one another in the church. Rejoicing in the unity of the deep love of Christ. Many of us have great unity, great joy that comes, and great encouragement that comes from a shared sports team, a shared hobby, and the joy that it brings upon one another. But how much more should we rejoice, and do you rejoice that another person that you know and that you love has a deep love for Jesus Christ? Oh, you love hunting too? That's awesome. How much more should we be happy and rejoicing in shared fellowship with Christ? Some of you enjoy fishing. That doesn't count. Okay? It's true. Sorry. Those two or three of you that love fishing can rejoice in fishing together. Or knitting, or whatever the case may be, right? These are things that we hold very deeply because we have a love for them. We, we enjoy them. 
And we talk about these things, but how much more is Paul here writing and rejoicing in the constant shared unity in the gospel? Do we share that same love and affection for others that are in the church? And we could just say generally, let's scope it out and go widespread, but even just focus in here locally. Glenwood Springs Baptist Church, the people that we know here, do you have a deep love, concern, both in your heart and in your bowels, right? You feel something towards them because you know them. You love them. There is a shared unity here. So much of the New Testament, so much of these epistles are preserving the unity in the church. Disunity in the church is not a very favorable position biblically. This is what it is that we are to care for, to be watchful over in our relationships with one another. How is it that the world is going to know that we are his disciples? By love for one another, right? So that requires love for one another. That requires actually loving one another, which requires that we know one another, that we have a concern for one another. And we can look at these two verses, and I understand that some of you guys are probably saying, okay, I get it. Love one another. Love the church. Be appreciative for it. Yes, intellectually that is entirely true, but move it past that and, and ask yourself, do you have a true, deep love and affection for the church? Both here at Glenwood Springs Baptist Church, but extending it outward to where if you were to travel and to meet a missionary who has a, sh a same uh, shared faith in the gospel, that you would rejoice in your fellowship with them, that you would be partakers and partners in their defense and their confirmation of the gospel. We get very individualistic here in America. It's very, very easy. It's very, very comfortable. The church is far more than just Glenwood Springs. It's far more than just Colorado, far more than just Western civilization, and it's even far more than just what's currently here in the world. Because the church, we saw the promises all the way back from Genesis all the way through Revelation about a year ago. We see how widespread, how vast, how big the church is, the people that Christ died for, the salvation that he secured for them. And to hearken back to verse 6, you look at Hebrews chapter 10, and we see that there is no unfinished work with God. He has completed all that he has begun. This is why upon Christ's death and his resurrection, ascending to heaven, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father because his work is done. It's done. He has atoned for sins. He has bought redemption. He has paid the price. He has done all of these things, and he has done. And now we eagerly await the day where we get to see him face to face. We eagerly await the day where those things are made perfect, when all things will be redeemed to himself as we are reconciled to him, and we simply get to praise him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what it is that we look forward to. And in the meantime, while we're all messy and struggling and here, we love one another. We're not perfect, but he is perfect, and that is what we pursue with one another. Let's pray.